Committee is proud to present today's guest, Christian Parenti. He is an investigative journalist as well as an associate professor of economics at John Jay University. He's published numerous books and articles on topics such as mass incarceration in the United States, the war on terror, climate change, and surveillance state. His most recent book is Radical Hamilton, Economic Lessons from a Misunderstood Founder. We are happy to have him speak with us today on a range of topics, including the deep state, diversity ideology, and the American founding fathers. And uh, with that, I hand it over to you, Christian. Thank you for speaking with us today. Okay. Well, thank you very much for for this invitation, for the chance to speak to you guys. I'm actually a full professor now, tenured and full professor. So, but who's counting? Um, so, yeah. The um, the first thing we talked about when you invited me was the diversity as ruling class ideology. So I'll just you know touch on that for a few minutes and then we'll have a discussion. So, I mean, what what I did in that article was looked at diversity ideology, not to be confused with actual diversity, in the context of Federalist 10. Federalist 10 was written by Madison as part of an effort by John Jay and Hamilton and Madison to argue for the ratification of the Constitution after the Constitutional Convention in 1787. The Constitution had to be ratified by nine of the 13 states. That was the agreement between all 13 states, that if nine of them ratified it, then they would all accept it. And it was not at all clear that it would be ratified because, among other things, it created a very strong centralized government, and a lot of people were afraid of that. And there were other concerns. And what Madison was speaking to specifically was not that fear of the big state. That's what the, the Bill of Rights, the first 10 amendments of the Constitution are about. The first 10 amendments of the Constitution, aka the Bill of Rights, they were agreed upon to, to add because there was so much concern about the, the power of the central state. But what Madison was speaking to in Federalist 10 was a set of elite concerns about political democracy. They thought if there's political democracy, well, then there'll be class leveling. There'll be economic democracy. If you're going to give everybody, even though it wasn't everybody, but there was, you know, there was no restrictions in the U.S. Constitution against anyone having the vote. There are no um, racial or gender restrictions. There are no property restrictions for either office holding or voting, right? The control of the elections is left to the states, and many of the states had those kinds of restrictions, but the federal constitution itself didn't. And so elites were kind of concerned. They were like, wait, wait a minute, where, where is this heading? You're going to give potentially anyone and all these people a vote? Then then what? Then they want our states. Then they want our wealth. Um, and so Madison was arguing against that, saying, no, look, it's wrong to think that economic, that that political democracy necessarily leads to economic democracy. It can if that majority faction, that majority group or interest group in a society of the propertyless can get together politically. Then they can use the machinery of political democracy to impose their will. However, society is naturally given to division into all sorts of faction, as you call it, which just means, you know, interest groups, 
social divisions. This can result from religious differences, from geographic differences, from attachments to specific political leaders. Any number of reasons come up. He says, and even when, and even when there aren't real reasons, people come up with the most trivial reasons to fall out between each other, right? He said, but of course, the most enduring source of faction is property, as the question of wealth and uh, who has it, who does not have it. And, and you know, he rehearses like you know, debtors and creditors, et cetera. So the solution to the problem of faction was counterintuitively, in Madison's argument, to lean into it, just to have a proliferation of faction so that that potentially majoritarian faction that we would call the working class can't get together as such. And they will get together instead in little subgroups as you know, followers of this faith, people from that region, et cetera. And that as long as faction was allowed to proliferate, the political threat of faction to the property elites would be minimized. And that's part of, that's what makes Federalist 10 so amazing. It's a member of the ruling class saying the quiet part out loud. And it's also, it's a political lesson that is central to class rule. It, it is central at any scale. It's, it's central to class rule within an institution, within a, a nation state and internationally, right? Devide et impera, divide and rule. So if you then look at diversity ideology in the context of that, it starts, it starts making more sense, right? It's like, well, this is, um, you know, while there are very real and very legitimate grievances motivating various groups that are being recognized, at least symbolically, in diversity ideology. Nonetheless, the result economically for the majority of people is that this kind of discourse leads to a weaker ruling class, a, a, sorry, a weaker working class, a distracted, more confused, hyper-variegated working class that is ultimately in large parts, unable to recognize itself as such. The working class in the United States is increasingly made up by people who cannot recognize themselves as members of the working class. They have any other number of identifications ranging from psychological diagnoses to racial, gender, sexual orientation, religious subset, right? People can come up with all sorts of, of um, quite creative identities, but it's, it's getting harder and harder for the majority of Americans to identify as, as workers, workers, renters, consumers, those who produce the wealth, those who do not own the means of production, right? So that was what, um, that's that article in a nutshell. And along the way, in that article, note just how he takes something so basic as the discussion of poverty in this country, just how hard it is to find a discussion of poverty in America that is actually framed in class terms. If you Google poverty, what you'll find are endless reports on what group suffers poverty at this rate versus that rate. And what will be very hard for you to find, if not impossible, is a description of who are the poor, right? Who is this class as such, right? You can find out which other groups suffer from the condition of impoverishment, but not a description of this class. So anyway, 
Um, there are other things we can talk about as well. You know, the deep state, um, the and the threat to democracy that it poses. I have a piece up at Compact now that continues on that theme, and I've written a couple other pieces at Compact that that deal with that. And I think that that is very very important. Um, but I will, I'll uh, stop my initial comments now and, and take your questions. I mean, I can keep going if there aren't questions, but. No, no, thank you. Um, um, yeah, anyone who has a question, just please type stack uh, in the comments and we will call on you in turn. So, I mean, just to start, I mean, you can just, one quote from Madison is, uh, I'll, I'll read this quote briefly. If elections were open to all classes of people, the property of the landed proprietors would be insecure. Our government ought to secure the permanent interests of the country against innovation. It ought to be so constituted as to protect the minority of the opulence against the majority. The Senate ought to represent the opulent minority. So from this perspective, you can end quote. So it could be said that the elite likes minorities because it is one. So how do we separate economic minorities from other minorities as treated by diversity ideology? What's, what's the difference here? Because um, it seems like... Um, Go ahead. Well, I, I think by getting the majority to recognize itself as a majority, step one is to stop focusing on what minority you are part of and start focusing on what majority you are part of. And the reasons for that are one, structural, because most people sell their labor to survive and most people do not own the means of production. Okay, you know, um, with the proliferation of 401ks, you could get technical gains. So, well, a lot of members of the working class own a little bit of stock through their, you know, pensions, but a lot of people don't even have such pensions. So just getting people to focus on the, the majority group that they're a part of, which is the working class, and to stop thinking about minorities, right? Um, so I think that's step one. And then the, you know, the obvious thing is if if uh, if if someone is is trying to defend the ruling class as an economic minority, you got to just step out of that language and speak to the fact that they're exploiting people and that that's what matters, not that they're you know part of a a tiny minority. Ricky Gervais actually had a a joke about that in some in some um, special of his about like how he's part of this really really small unrecognized minority of white straight male like disgustingly rich multimillionaires and it's like who 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 feels sympathy for him um so i guess that's what i would say just got to just shift got to change the subject out of that kind of thinking because it's i think a mistake to assume that the working class recognizes itself and unites as a result of endless processes of self-verigation uh, and in every meeting people trying to come up with an ex exact you know portrayal you know an, an exact accounting of how everyone in the room is slightly different from everyone else or profoundly different from each other so i mean as adolf reed has said numerous times he says, i don't i don't understand no or says his his line is that you know no one has yet explained to me how we go into this, how we come out of the room after talking about how we're all different from each other, how we come out of the room more united, right? So, I mean, we have to talk about how we are all united and leave some of, you know, it's not to say that the ways people are different 
And it's not to say that social oppressions aren't important, they are, but like there also needs to be a practice and a discourse of becoming cognizant of how we're all in this together and how do we work with people who are very different from each, how, how do people who are different from each other work together on their common interests? That's the great irony of the whole thing in a way is actually, you know, the workplace for most Americans is, you know, the most diverse place and uh, struggling at a workplace is really the practice of diversity in, you know, in, in most cases. And it's the practice of diversity, not through focusing on how everyone's different, but through focusing on how all these people who actually come from these diverse backgrounds are actually pretty similar because they all work for whatever, you know, some big meat packer or whatever, whatever kind of corporation. And that despite there, you have some people who are profoundly religious and you have other people who are atheists that they both make, you know, minimum wage and can't get uh, enough hours to get benefits. I mean, that's, that's the kind of struggle that actually brings people together. Thank you. Uh, Sam, you're on stack. Sure. Um, thank you, Christian, for coming to speak to us today. Um, we had a meeting last week to talk about some of your writings that we had gone over. Um, and I don't have the quote in front of me, but one of the lines from Madison's Federalist 10 talks about using kind of the Senate as a way to mediate faction or control faction. Um, we're big fans of the Aaron Reich's work on the professional managerial class here. I wanted to ask, and we're talking about the political class as functioning as like ultra PMC effectively to the entire working class. Do you, how do you see the existing class strata in the United States today? Do you see it still in kind of the Marxist proletariat bourgeoisie binary, or do you see it as something else? Well, yeah, I mean, I, I see it in the classic Marxist binary, but that doesn't, doesn't stop there. I mean, the PMC are very important as a constituency. You know, um, the material conditions of the PMC have been, are, 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 you know, are increasingly similar to those of the proletariat. The, the Ehrenreichs had a, a follow-up piece that some of you might have read. They did it for the Rosa Luxemburg Institute a couple of years ago, a couple of years, maybe 10 years ago, um, looking at what's happened to the professional managerial class. And, you know, they're increasingly proletarianized. I remember one stat from that was about how lawyers like in 1980 the average lawyer worked for a small firm and now the average lawyer works for one of 250 transnational legal behemoths right so the professional managerial class is being absorbed in a structural sense and being you know turned into a kind of white collar proletariat but they're they're a very important and distinct political constituency you know by virtue of their roles managing people they uh, have a very different worldview and, you know, are appealed to with different kinds of messages and are used by the Democrats and the foundations as a kind of, you know, as their base. So that's what I would say on that. Okay, cool. You're on start. And I guess, well, you, you know, one other thing I think that's important is, is about that is like to think about the ultra rich, you know. Um, I looked it up and, and you know, the, the billionaire class today are apparently not as wealthy relative to the rest of society as the robber barons were, but they're getting close. Right. 
And I think that is something that's unique to this moment that we need to pay special attention to, that we've got the rich and then we've got like the ultra rich and the ultra rich are, uh, are, are a dangerous, a particularly dangerous element in society because they don't even have to broker very much with the rest of their class. They don't have to work through, you know, the chamber of commerce or that. I mean, you, you know, they can just individually start striking out and uh, buying newspapers, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so I think that's, that's an important class to look at and think about. And I mean, I've been saying this for years and I, for years I was waiting for Doug Henwood to write his book about the ruling class, but I think the ruling class needs to be studied uh, more than it is. Um, so I put that out there for whatever it's worth. Thank you. Colt, are you ready to go? Uh, yeah, yeah, thank you. Um, <clears throat> that's so funny that you just started, you brought up uh, the robber barons um, because that was gonna, that was kind of my question a little bit, just the similarities that you see between, um, you know, a potential populist movement back then. Um, and then obviously the situation uh, and the extreme, you know, wealth uh, and greed accumulation of the of the billionaire class uh, and everything, and and obviously the potential to kind of uh, form a, a broad class consciousness when um, when really it seems like the it's like everybody's got a cell phone, so everybody's got like a faction, you know, and it's like this is this ultra uh, fraction of uh, of of you know of the working class uh, and in deflection of of people believe in, um, uh, against their, you know, rational self-interest and everything. Um, so since you've already talked about that, I have, um, just kind of another kind of like little side, uh, side, you know, question. Um, so like in the 1840s and the 1850s, um, you had, um, uh, like John C. Calhoun and you had like a, like that hyper, uh, diversity, um, rhetoric around like, uh, slavery and states rights and everything. Um, and you had a lot of uh, the elites talking about a civil war, and they're always talking about a civil war, and and then that eventually happened. Um, and it seems like today all they talk about is the apocalypse and like a kind of like a, a dystopian sci-fi future. Um, so I was just wondering if you could kind of comment uh, something on that, whatever pops in your head. Thank you. About about apocalypse discourse, yeah, um, yeah. Well, you know, one thing about apocalypse discourse, I feel like um, I kind of regret uh, the extent to which I have played into that uh, in writing about climate change. I mean, obviously, climate change is very real. Uh, and, you know, the the trajectory of global capitalism is pretty apocalyptic. We've got the proliferation of failed states beginning with the end of the Cold War and the collapse of Somalia. And that has not stopped. There's there's lots and lots about the current configuration globally that is just absolutely apocalyptic. You know, the, ap the apocalypse is happening every day. It's happening as we speak in many parts of the world, right? I mean, but that's um, that's endemic to, that's part of neoliberal capitalism, right? It's also the legacy of the Cold War and it's, and it's hot wars in the global South. But there is, there is something very, very debilitating and it's a tricky uh, discourse you know, how does one acknowledge these issues and not at the same time feed into cynicism and uh, despair? And so 
that's a caveat, I suppose, say, in other words, you know, you know, the apocalyptic elements of this moment are very, very real. But I've become increasingly aware of just how debilitating that kind of discussion is for young people and, and how useful it is for elites, you know. And you see it most clear. I saw it most clearly in COVID, right? And this is COVID was in many ways, uh, you know, the, the deep states and the ruling classes wet dream. You know, they had this emergency that just allowed them to do whatever they wanted to do. And they got mass consent for doing so. And as a result, there was this massive upward trans transfer of wealth. Um, and it is, you know, it seems like there's elements in that the planning class, the political class, the philanthropic leaders who are really like, you know, have a taste for that rule by emergency. And I think that the future is going to be full of much more of that. And that the, you know, the left in terms of COVID, I mean, a piece that I wrote, I don't know if you all have read it for the gray zone, was very critical of the left and its embrace of the lockdowns and, uh, the vaccine mandates and you know everything that went with that moment. I thought that was that was it was shocking. We we saw the the most dramatic infringement of civil liberties in peacetime, and really the most dramatic infringement of civil liberties in this country since World War II. Probably, you know, it was different, but in some ways it was it was as bad or worse. And 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 the left, far from resisting endorsed it and championed it, you know? And everything that the left had helped establish about that moment was forgotten. The idea of agency capture, a suspicion of these huge corporations, particularly around medicine and big pharma, right? All of this, all these critiques um, out the window. And instead you had unions supporting the idea of firing their members who didn't want to take a an experimental vaccine, sometimes arguing because like, hey, I've already had COVID. In Europe, they accept natural immunity. What, what, you know, why can't I do that here? And you, you have unions, often with left-wing self-conscious, left-wing leadership saying, hey, get rid of these people, fire them, right? So that was deeply shocking to me. And, uh, you know what I see coming out of COVID is that there is there's there's a taste for rule by emergency has been rekindled among political elites all over the world. And one thing you saw with COVID that was so interesting, um, I thought, was just the the similarity uh, in the embrace by every power center in society in a totally uncoordinated way, right? So you had like literally every university dean using this emergency to grab power at the same time that you had governments doing that. At the same time, you had street gangs, you know, the, the Mara Salvatrucha in San Salvador, which controls whole neighborhoods, used COVID to impose their their power even more. They, they imposed their own lockdowns, right, to have even more control of its neighborhoods. Um, so, you know, every every little note of hierarchy in in society pretty much grabbed on to the discourse of emergency and embraced it and did what what they wanted and it was you know various sometimes conflicting agendas and so it's like the ta- the taste for rule by emergency is i i fear quite widespread now i don't know if that 
answers yeah. your question, but I just kind of to follow up. I think it's important. You know, I think it's really important to um, to remember in terms of climate change. You know, we we do not know. Uh, science is not perfect. Climate change is real. Uh, everything, the whole hockey stick thing, could happen, but it might not happen. And whatever the case, it's like we have to believe in the future and you know struggle for the future no matter what. And uh, that you know treating that kind of science that the world is going to end in ten years, it can you know treating that as totally infallible. Uh, I think can be dangerous. And I think I might have, you know, um, cast cast that science in, in a, you know, a little less critically in my book, Tropic of Chaos, than I would now. I mean, the hockey stick, like abrupt climate change could happen, but it might not. Uh, you know, there's a lot of things that, you know, 10, 15 years ago, they were saying there's going to be more and uh, more intense hurricanes. And you know, they turned out they were wrong. Hurricanes are forming on water, but they're landing less often because they didn't calculate in that uh, rising at, uh, land temperatures would like increase the you know offshore wind that was pushing hurricanes, preventing them from landing. And so, you know, it's like so these models are not perfect. Um, climate change is real. It's terrifying. But but it's like we cannot live as if the world is going to end in 10 years. Because it's not. It's going to just, you know, be more of the same. You know, in 10 years and 20 years and 30 years, we'll still be here and we'll still be dealing with, you know, problems that are fundamentally rooted in unchecked, unbridled capitalism, increasingly authoritarian politics, absolutely massively overgrown and totally out of control police and intelligence bureaucracies, right? These are the yeah. issues we've got to be dealing with. And militarism, this like, I mean, so on this, yeah, on, on this topic, I mean, I, we, one thing that we're interested in is just thinking about how the left and progressives in America have, in recent years, in many ways, become the party of the establishment or have, you know, supported establishment, uh, you know, whether it's it's uh, the squad voting for arms for Ukraine or, as you're talking about, the COVID lockdown stuff. So, like, how do you account for this change in the left's own self-perception? Activity, yeah, it, it is very, it's very interesting. Um, well, I think it, you know, that it goes back to efforts to co-op the left, right? That um, to some extent, this project developed not not with the idea of turning the left into a vehicle for governance, but that it was baked in that that baked into the counterinsurgency against the new left in the 60s was the project of co-optation. I mean, it, it says in the COINTELPRO directive, right? It's like the mission is to misdirect, right? And um in one of those compact articles, uh, Will the Left Stand Up to the Deep State? I quoted uh, one of the in, one of the more important sources on COINTELPRO. He was a he was a an informant who felt that he was ripped off by the FBI and then went public, sort of parallel to and um, the 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 document dump that came out of Media Pennsylvania, by which we know 
of COINTELPRO. And this guy was uh, very clear about how part of the mission was to control, not just to destroy, but to control new left organizations, right? And I have a quote in that piece from the guy where he's saying, you know, our, our, we wanted to, you know, determine where these protests would go, what they would chant, when they would move, et cetera, right? So, I mean, there's an element of co-optation that begins at that moment. The Ford Foundation starts advancing money to social movements in the early 60s. I think it's 64 in Tierra Amarillo, New Mexico. There's a struggle over land grants. And um, that's the first time the Ford Foundation starts funding social movements. But then, you know, through the 60s, all the philanthropic foundations start funding social movements. At the same time, the Johnson administration is moving to this block grant programs and responding to the pressure of these social movements by giving them block grants and turning social movements and organizers into administrators. You know, and San Francisco was one of the first places where this was practiced uh, to great effect. And there was a very aggressive urban renewal movement in San Francisco. And there was a very robust opposition to it, well-organized um, among the kind of working class that, you know, um, diverse working class in downtown where it was all these old merchant Marines. And then in the Fillmore, which was primarily African-American and then also um, over towards North Beach to some extent in uh, Filipino neighborhoods. Uh, and these these movements were very powerful. What they ended up, you know, what, long story short, what happens is a lot of these organizations end up as nonprofit housing developers or administrators, right? And it's like that kind of process has been going on ever since the 60s, all throughout the US left at, at every level. And so I think that's kind of the deep roots. That's sort of like um, part of what produces this professional managerial class left that is so amenable to being used as, as a tool of rule. It, there's also the, the open embrace by corporations of all the, the diversity discourse, you know, anything but class versions of diversity, right? This is being, this becomes an independent industrial sector on its own as diversity trainers. There's, there's hardly any research done on that. When I wrote that article, I looked into that and the number that's quoted is now like almost, I think, 15 years old. It was, uh, no, sorry, it was about 10 years old. There was, there was one study uh, by, you know, Gardner, one of these consulting agencies or something about the diversity, equity, and inclusion consultancy industry. And I forget what they came up with. It was 8 billion or 13 billion or something like that. But I mean, that was a long time ago. So, you know, there's, there's this whole kind of like industry of this. You've got the intellectual class that, you know, you know, many of whom feel radical and are radical and, and want to uh, help build a more equitable and humane society, yet they're in these hierarchical institutions like universities and newspapers where there are certain third rails. Frequently, one of those is class. So they want to pursue, they want to, you know, exercise their politics, but they're also constantly aware that like, okay, you don't, don't question American empire too aggressively and don't get too into class 
but you know, you can actually, there's increasing room culturally and professionally to like, to lean into the question of oppression and diversity rather than economic exploitation. And, and so, you know, you add all this up and then the cherry on the cake is Trump and Trump derangement syndrome. And I think that people just brought an enormous amount of anxiety. A lot of it rooted in, you know, climate, um, climate concerns, um, and um, and there's just like with cues from the media and the establishment, like cathected upon Trump as the devil, you know, and reason went out the window and that that's how, you know, we have we have ended up here through with, with a, you know, the kind of movement oriented left in a in lockstep of the Democratic Party. And there's, a, there's an enormous amount of cognitive dissonance on that front, which I've been noticing ever since COVID. I think I used to not notice it as much. And I probably used to kind of, well, I used to participate in it more, which is that, you know, you have a couple of drinks with your friends, you criticize the Democratic Party, and then next election, you go vote for the Democrats, you know? Um, yeah, I know I used to do that. But now that strikes me as, as really kind of an insane sort of cognitive dissonance. People sitting around talking about how awful Democrats are, and then uh you know refusing to stand up to them and and forgetting the fact that the left historically gets more from the democrats when it's a problem right like even if your framework is just reformist it's like you know organization and disruption and, and autonomy from the democrats helps gets the get the goods right i'm not i'm not going to be so naive as to say that you know it doesn't help to be in the room and you know all this kind of stuff but the you know, I'm not proposing just some sort of uh, you know, adolescent anarchist fantasy that if you if you yell loudly enough at your parents, they give you what you want, right? But it's like there has the left has to have some autonomy from the Democratic Party. It has to be able to be like, okay, so what? So you guys lost the election because we didn't vote for you. We ran our own candidate. You know, I, don't come crying to me. And we're not able to do that because people can't even recognize the fact that, like, okay, uh, you know. The Biden administration is continuing with the privatization of Medicare and Medicaid. It's continuing with privatization of the, the VA. It basically continued much of Trump's uh, border policies. It's foreign policies, even like worse and more aggressive than his. And it's like, are, you know, would it really be the worst thing in the world if we uh, if we didn't have Joe Biden as president? I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not convinced it would be much worse. I mean, I think that on, on the environmental front, deregulation, workers' rights, a Trump administration would be much, much worse. But, you know, internationally, I, we would not be dealing with a war in which the largest atomic power plant in Europe sits on the front lines and it has lost power six times, you know? And I mean, even if you're uh, a pro-nuke leftist, you should be concerned about that, right? I mean, you could spin this, you could say, you know, okay, Props to the pro-nuke crew. These nuke plants really do hold up well under all sorts of conditions. I mean, Fukushima survived by and large, like my, this is my understanding, survived the, you know, the earthquake. But what happened was that the tsunami overtopped the wall and then came down and then flooded the generators, which were sitting on the ground rather than up off the ground. Had the generators been up off the ground and the tsunami topped that wall and the, the the grounds of the nuke plant had flooded, they probably would not have lost power and there probably would not have been a meltdown. So, you know, even if you're one of these pro-nuke types, you should be freaked out by the fact that the Zaporizhia nuke plant 
has lost power six times during this war. And if that thing blows, there's no Soviet Union to send 270,000 liquidators over there with total exposure tires of like only two hours each, you know, dumping concrete on the thing. So I, I, I do not think we would be facing this problem if Trump had been elected. So I'm not advocating for Trump's election at all. But I'm just saying like, you know, the left living in total, utter terror of the Republican Party is crucial to why the left has become basically just a tool of Democratic Party governance. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, we're going to get back to stacks. So, uh, Adam, are you still here with a question? Adam isn't here. I think we should uh, go to Chicago. Okay. Uh, Chicago, you're on. Oh, sorry. sorry. Hey, yeah, I'm here. Um, I'm in DC. Oh, okay. Go ahead. Ask was about. I can't hear you, Adam. I, I can't hear you. Uh, I'm sorry. Uh, I'll, I'll call back in later. Well, no, I can hear you now. You were just too far away from the the machine. Okay, great. So the question I wanted to ask was about uh, your comment about how the ruling class needs to be studied. So uh, what I I just wanted a little bit more information on that. Like, what would be the questions of those studies? What would be the research question? Well, um, you know, who they are, where they are, how they rule, what they do. You know, we, uh, William Domhoff was, you know, who wrote who, who Rules New Haven, then Who Rules America, Who Rules America Now. You know, there was a whole little um, sub-discipline of this ruling class studies influenced by C. Wright Mills to some extent. You know, and what they looked at was the methodology was interlocking boards. So William Domhoff, who's still, still with us, um, you know, he was trying to sort of define, come up with a methodology to define ruling groups. Like, can you say there's a ruling class? And his answer was yes, that you can you can see it through these interlocking, you know, boards of directors, right? Um, there's a very good book by um, Mizruchi, is his last name, Mark, I think Mark Mizruchi, and um, called The Fracturing... The fracturing of the corporate elite or the fragmenting of the corporate elite. And he teaches in business history or something like that. And, you know, he looks at the, the, the kind of disintegration of the American ruling class. And his thesis is that with neoliberalism and the rise of, you know, alternative finance, shadow banking, that the role of banks on corporate boards has changed and that the that the role of the bankers on corporate boards was sort of like um, the, the bankers were the connective tissue. That's where the, the kind of class consciousness entered more readily than, I mean, it entered from all different places, but that was a very consistent place at which a kind of larger class message could be introduced into the decision-making of the board of directors of this or that company, right? And that with neoliberalism and deregulation and deindustrialization and the increase in the increasingly financialized quality of American capitalism, that the old line investment banks play less and less important role in the corporate culture of the leadership. And so things have become more fragmented. That's Ms. Rucci's argument. So, I mean, I think the studies, you know, discussion of the ruling class would be those kinds of things. Like, what, like who are they? Uh, where do they get their ideas? Um, what is their relationship to the state? What is their relationship to each other? What is their relationship to the intelligence agencies? You know, and what 
you know, how do the different industrial sectors play out in this? What role does energy, uh, you know, domestic energy and extractive industries play? What are the factions in this class? I mean, is there really um, much of a division or how big a division is there between the kind of Coke industry, libertarian, privately held? Um, So, yeah, and, you know, looking at the different factions uh, and how they relate to each other, um, those kinds of questions. Okay, uh, Chicago is on stack. Uh, hi, Christian. Thank you so much for uh, taking the time to talk to us today. Um, my question, uh, I, I also, can, can you hear me? Am I coming through? I can hear you, yeah. Um, so my question is um, kind of drawing on the Walter Ben Michaels quote, I think you uh, used in one of the pieces we're discussing, saying that um, under diversity ideology that we would achieve like a just society if say only 13% of the people in poverty were African-American and for instance, and if um, basically social ills were evenly distributed among social groups um, without really um, decreasing the absolute amount of social ill. Um, I've always thought that quote uh, gives um, like the diversity ideology and the ruling class a little too much credit in that it implies that they're like actively working to um, decrease disparities in a meaningful sense. and I, I'm just not really sure where you stand on the question of whether the ruling class, um, insofar as like a class can be, um, I, I guess, uh, beneficent or can be malevolent, um, is actually working to um, decrease disparities in a real sense or if they have an actual interest in, in fact, uh, making disparities worse, um, given that, like, an anti-racist, like, Kindian critique uh, is only more salient if, say, the plight of Black people gets worse. Uh, so I, I was just kind of wondering where you, you stand um, on what the actual well, motivations of that, yeah. of that class would be. Well, I mean, just to be clear, you know, I mean, uh, what Walter Ben Michaels is saying with that quote is just that, like, this is the implication of this discourse. The implication is that, you know, uh, victory would constitute a a non-racist distribution of poverty across the class, you know, hierarchy. And that would certainly be less racist, but it wouldn't, you know it wouldn't change the class equation, right? If you had 13% of the 1% were black and only 13% of prisoners were black, right? That would be a much less racist America, but you would still have the class hierarchy. So he's just, you know, saying that's that seems to be the the implication of the of the disparity discourse in terms of, you know, the ruling class. I mean, yeah, I think that um, there are um, 
there is real commitment to uh, diversity. Yeah, I mean, there's there's probably also you know fake commitment to it, but I think there's also real real commitment to it. And I think there, you know, there has been a proper um, you know change in in you know the professional managerial class and elites. It's it's not approaching that you know the the exact proportions, but I, I mean, I think. I think they take it very seriously. So yeah. Um and um yeah, I mean I think I think they take it seriously. I don't I don't think it's like all a big act. Like I don't think that as soon as they close the doors they have a totally different conversation. I mean part of this has to do with um here's something that should be studied if the ruling class is studied. Ruling class discourse how do elites learn to think and talk? And what relationship does talking and thinking have? And so, you know, one thing I think that goes on is that when you're in a professional situation, you have to be concerned about legal consequences, right? So if you're in a, an institution and you're skirting the edge of the law, you're going to be very careful not to say, hey, guys, we're skirting the edge of the law here. You know, like, I suppose it could be legal if we get rid of this waste in this fashion, but we really should probably do it in that fashion. You don't say stuff like that. Or if you do say stuff like that, you don't rise to the hierarchy because it means you're dumb. Right. So you learn to mask and use language that masks what, you know, what you also what you know is also going on. And that at a certain point, you know, you people get very adept at living with this kind of cognitive dissonance and um, having a. A, a sort of defensible public set of utterances and um and there isn't necessarily two deeply different transcripts for a lot of elites i mean I think a lot of elites just like what you see is what what you get and that they they believe in diversity and they believe in capitalism you know and they by and large avoid the question of of economic exploitation and economic inequality and they focus on these other questions and they're you know and 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 as a result we've got you know a trans admiral we've got you know i mean there's like you know the the elites are becoming more diverse you know all right uh nick in dc you're on stack hi can you guys hear me okay yes hi uh, it's a great pleasure to speak to you, Christian. Um, I was thinking, you know, before uh, we met today about some of your more recent arguments in your Hamilton book, and also, you know, which, I, which is a book that I take to be sort of directed to the question of um, how we achieve the capacity we will need in order to rectify global warming. Um, always been very interested in your comments about projects in Iceland, about decarbonization and things like this, right? But if you're following me here with my logic, I think ultimately what we're talking about is an argument for a strong state. And I'm just curious if you could share with us today maybe some of your thoughts about how we achieve that balance, because I know a lot of what we're talking about here uh, today with COVID and everything is kind of, in a sense, repudiating the idea of a strong state. So it just What's your particular stance on this question as a leftist and as a thinker? I, I'd love to hear you elaborate a little bit on, on what I at least perceive to be a sort of a tension, but I'm sure you've thought about it and I'm sure you have an answer. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, well, I've been thinking on my list of things to do is, 
writing a piece that would be tentatively called with apologies to Mr. Madison and Mr. Jefferson, you know, and um, that um, certainly, uh, you know, we have a strong state. We have a very, very strong state. And in COVID, we saw its abuses spread far and wide. So I have gained a new appreciation for the the American civil liberty tradition that that provides the people with mechanisms to push back against that state and contain it. And I think that that is very central um, for any kind of progressive class struggle to occur is that we have to embrace the idea of freedom. We have to embrace civil liberties. And I mean, these have real utility they, for the left. They are also the products of left-wing struggle. I've written about that in Jacobin. We need to resurrect that history, recover that history, that the, the First Amendment, just to take one example, was not national from the beginning. It was for uh, over 100 years seen as only pertaining to federal territory. And pretty much, you know, the vast majority of the cases that helped nationalize the First Amendment are the plaintiffs are leftists. They're anarchists, they're communists, they're socialists, they're trade unionists. And that's how the First Amendment gets nationalized and states lose the right to control free speech and, you know, censor uh, radical literature, et cetera. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I was always in favor. I mean, I've always defended civil liberties, but I, but the that stuff has come become much more important in my thinking as of late. And what I was trying to do in Radical Hamilton was also. I mean, it was just like my excuse to dive into American history and sort of, you know, like climb the intellectual mountain that is the Constitution, like really deal with it and and really understand the American Revolution. And it was also just because I found I kind of backed into it by mistake because I found a hole in the literature. For fun, I was reading about Hamilton. I kept seeing all this stuff about, you know, the report on the subject of manufacturers about planning and industrialization. And I have always been interested in the way that capitalism is predicated on planning and dependent on the state, you know? Um, and so at first, like the idea was that I was just gonna, in conversations with Verso, that we just republish the report on manufacturers with an introduction and then the introduction got to be too big and then it became the book, right? So in a way, I mean, that, that book was not very strategically timed. You know, in terms of my own thinking, it was, it was you know, it was a, a book that was, to some extent, late on a question that was at the heart of neoliberalism, you know, and it was written sort of at the sort of the death of neoliberalism. And that question is, is like, you know, what is the real relationship between the state and the market? And, you know, the real relationship is that the state proceeds and presides, you know, and that the market is uh, a function of the state. And you can go back to, you know, in, into like, you know, the transition debates. I mean, look at the, the, the role of the state in nurturing capitalist economic activity so as to tax it, so as to use those resources for war making. I mean, this is central to the development of capitalism. The development of capitalism is obviously not reducible to that, but that's a really, really fundamental dynamic in capitalism. And so, you know, Radical Hamilton was trying to Americanize that story, tell that story in an American context. And um, 
So I don't think I was necessarily arguing um, that the state needed to be stronger, but I was I was trying to say like, look, you know, there's always economic planning. You already have that. You already have massive socialization of costs. So the only missing part is like, what do you want to do with all this? You know, and to try and make uh, elements of the left who who have a kind of a, a state aphasia to make them realize, like, look at look at what this beast does already. There's already tons of planning, tons of socialization, and and you know we need to be trying to make you know, get control of those processes and make demands of those processes rather than pretend they don't exist and that we're going to like all, you know, um, grow food in, in empty lots and, you know, or, or any of the other kinds of, you know, Lilliputian fantasies that the, the philanthropic foundations foist upon the left on the regular. Thank you. That, that. you know, we're, we're coming up on an hour. I just want to make sure we still have time to pursue yeah, more I'm, questions. I'm, I'm fine, yeah. Okay, great. Uh, Noah, you're on stack. Uh, Noah, are you good to go? Yeah, I'm good to go. Um, hi, Christian. Thanks for talking to us. So, uh, the what, some changes that I've noticed, sort of in the culture war within the left itself, is that like words like woke and identity politics are becoming sort of like broadly recognized as like bad things. You know, I feel like if you go back five years ago, you know, and you're criticizing these 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 terms, um, uh, you, you know, you're going to get pretty much all bad responses. Uh, do you think that sort of the center has shifted some and that there is sort of a return to class issues happening within the left? Like, you know, have we have we won any, you know, games here or... Is it all bad still? Um, you, you know, I don't, I don't know because yeah. I'm not engaged in enough left-wing organizations to know. But I don't think that that we've turned some corner and that th this kind of, um, you know, woke ideology is has been vanquished. For a while, I, I, you know, took the took the suggestion of Walter Ben Michaels and Adolf Reed to not use the term woke because it was a right-wing coinage. But actually, I think it's uh, it's worth using because I think it really describes something, and it is you know it's it's uh, it's an ideology that has at its heart also a kind of therapeutic sensibility, and a methodological individualism. I did a piece for Insight uh, for Nonsight, Walter Ben Michael's publication, um, about the origins of the first privilege walk, and uh, that gets into and it was. Um uh well it's a lot you can you can read you can read the article. Um, but you know, it, it has its roots in the whole kind of therapeutic turn in the 60s and 70s. And that is a huge part of what woke is, along with diversity ideology. But I think it's in some ways, even more importantly, is this kind of like therapeutic sensibility. Like the fact that, and you see this when, when AOC last week. Uh, was criticizing Donald Trump's CNN town hall. She wasn't like, we got to hear more from this billionaire tax cheat who has a record of ripping off workers. She framed it in this like therapeutic sense of it about like, how he was, you know, threatening, he was putting at risk uh, e. Jean Carroll, who had accused him of rape, and it was about her psychological well being. It was just like, I mean, I saw this profoundly depoliticizing. I mean, not to make light of of uh, Eugene Carroll's 
suffering or, or what Donald Trump, you know, did or whatever. If he did do anything, who knows? I'm sure he's done stuff like it, if he, even if he didn't do that. But it, it was sort of to, to miss the whole kind of larger politics of it. It's like, let's talk about class. Let's talk about this guy's class position. What are his what's his agenda? You know, who does he serve? Um, so so I I no, I do not actually think it's on decline. I mean, I think there's this, you know, more and more people in the left are waking up to the fact that, wait a minute, this is not adding up to anything. But there are a lot of people who are still really deeply into it. I mean, it wasn't long ago that I had a conversation with a friend. Um, and someone who's becoming a lawyer, who's, you know, I, I think they would identify as a leftist, but they're, you know, more or less been in, been around the left. And uh, and uh, this this person like uh, cancel culture came up and and they were they were their line was there is no such thing as cancel culture. It's accountability culture. So, I mean, I was totally shocked to hear that, you know, that that somebody and you point out, so wait a minute, Al Franken, remember, he was fired for like, you know, touching uh, he was driven out of the Senate for, you know, allegedly touching a, a woman's back inappropriately during a photo shoot that around lots of people. And, like, that's not cancel culture. I mean, people, you know. So if stuff still happens like that to me, that that's an indication. That's just one example. But I mean, it's an indication a lot of people are still really deep into this stuff. And it comes from everywhere. I mean, it's now now that it's become official ideology, you know, we're bombarded with this all the time. So I think it's it's not over. But I do think you point out something right, which is that, you know, more and more people are. Are kind of stepping back a little bit. Taking a more critical view. Thank you. So, yeah, there's a question in the chat that I think kind of uh, goes on this point. It's, can you talk a bit about your thoughts on the prospect of the organization of a workers' party in America that breaks from the DNC, RNC hegemony? Do you think there's a prospect for organizing people just around a shared contempt of both parties? Is that a prospect for the future of American politics? I don't know. You know, I, I think more important than whatever kind of electoral vehicle there may or may not be is the question of class consciousness. And I think that that's what really needs to be developed uh, before any such vehicle can be particularly effective. So that's kind of a dodge, kind of a lame, a lame answer. But I mean, I think it's, it, you know, it's really predicated on that, that if, if, if there's massive class consciousness and people are pushing for their you know, interests as workers, then you'll start getting all sorts of strange concessions from both parties. Um, you mean, look at Richard Nixon, right? I mean, Richard Nixon was not progressive. Richard Nixon presided over the creation of the Environmental Protection Agency, over OSHA, over the Mine, and, uh, Mine Safety Health Administration. Um, you know, those are those are major innovations in terms of policy protecting working people in the environment. And he did that because he was under pressure. Right. So that that I think the most important thing is the kind of building class consciousness to build pressure from below. And less important is what form of party, how do we relate to the two parties? And or at least that's not my um, that's not my strong suit thinking about those things. Gotcha. All right, uh, Lowell, you're on stack. Thank you, and uh, aloha from Hawaii. Um, 
Christian. Uh, so I want to I want to jump away a moment from the state and ruling class and those pertinent issues and get a little gossipy, but with a sincere intention. That is, what's wrong with the left? And I mean specifically, can you give us your you know brief diagnoses of organizations um, like DSA, PSL? CPUSA, you've got organizations that have been around sometimes in the case of CPUSA more than, a, I think, 100 years. Um, there are all these organizations. Um, what's wrong with them? Why haven't we achieved the things that we want to achieve and we're sliding backwards? Well, that's well, that's a great question. I'm not sure I can answer it in the the level of detail that you're requesting. I mean, I just don't know enough about all these organizations to to speak to that granular level um, thing. But what's wrong with the left? Um, I mean, I think that it is one. It's that it has been targeted, right? And so people with good class politics get eliminated, and people, you know, leaders who start out. Uh, without having real clear class politics and develop them, get eliminated, right? You've got, I mean, Fred Hampton, Martin Luther King, um, you know, and the red baiting of intellectuals it doesn't have to end, end dramatically in assassination. But I mean, that kind of process of just, you know, you know, I mean, the kind of red baiting in academia, I mean, this is particularly close to my heart because my father was red baited out of, out of academia. And, um, and though he's very, you know, well known, he's 90 years old. Um, and still with us, but no longer writing and and speaking. Um, I mean, he's talking, not, not not no longer doing public speaking. Um, but you know, he was you know he was driven out of academia at first by conservatives, but then often by liberals, and 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 that made life rough. So you know, there's that there's repression, and then at the same time that there's repression, there's the project of co-optation that's being funded by the foundations, and they are you know, and and also the kind of federal block grant programs, which turns organizers into administrators of housing programs, of social welfare programs, you know, you know organizing and, and agitation becomes advocacy, quote unquote, and there are jobs for the leadership class. Um, so that co-optation and professionalization process helps confuse people further. And so there's a stripping away of any kind of class politics and into the vacuum comes, you know, ever more rarefied forms of diversity ideology and this kind of, you know, therapeutic sensibility that you have to guard against harm, that you have to, you know, uh, include, you, you know, sacrifice everything in the, in, you know, on the altar of sort of like the most vulnerable among us. Not that the most vulnerable among us don't actually need protection, they do, but it's like when it becomes a kind of fetish. I mean, you saw this in the example of the, I think it was the 2018 DSA convention where there's the viral clip of someone gets up and says, please don't clap. You know, actually a, a student at John Jay, uh, we have a fantastic master's program in the economics program where I am a professor. We have one of the few places where you can study heterodox economics, you know, where it's not just neoclassical economics where you can read Marx and Keynes and lots of economic history. Anyway, one of uh, our recent graduate students was actually on the 
steering committee of DSA. And I asked him about this recently. I said, what actually happened with that? You know, how does that decision make? He said, it, uh, his recollection was there was no decision. That was basically somebody from the audience was like, hey, the clapping's really loud. We have, you know, people with like, you know, conditions here. Can you not clap? And it was just like, out of a kind of like etiquette, a sense of sort of like being nice and taking care of vulnerable people, someone got up and, and made this announcement and everyone was like, oh, okay, we have to do this. You know, that there was actually no reason to discussion about that. Um, so, I mean, like that, that's a perfect kind of encapsulation of what's wrong. It's like, what, what, what are you thinking? You want to, you want to tell it, you want to take state power and then you want to totally transform economic relations and you don't want people to hoot and holler and clap and yell at the political convention? I mean, how does that add up? It's insane, right? So, but I mean, that, that conversation didn't happen because of this sort of sensibility, which is like this therapeutic sensibility and, um, and, and politics having been reduced to etiquette. And I think the foundations are a, a big part of that, that a lot of, you know, the non-profitization of the left means the foundations have pretty much direct intellectual control. And this is what they push. They push this kind of, you know, diversity training, which is also always this therapeutic training, right? It's about like speaking your truth, finding yourself, all this kind of stuff. And I think part of the, the counter answer to that stuff is we have to realize that, you know, politics has been made throughout history by really messed up people. I had the opportunity when I was young to go spend time with the FMLN guerrillas at the end of the war. And long story short, there were, I think there were like two Americans who hooked up with the FMLN. And one of them happened to be from where I was from in Vermont. And I, um, um, I foolishly was like, and then, and so they were there, they're working as a videographer and they were not a fighter, but they were like embedded with the FMLN. And, um, and then there's the, the offensive and the FMLN take the capital of San Salvador in 1989. They hold it for like two weeks and then they're, they're forced back into the mountains. And then in 93, that the war concludes and, and, um, and the family friend had, we knew was alive, but had disappeared during the offensive and had gone into the mountains with the guerrillas. And, and I managed to find out where they were by, by foolishly being like, I know someone in El Salvador to a journalist who was like, who actually like, was like, I know that person know where they are. And I went up there and hung out with the FMLN and in this village. And one of the things that was remarkable, and at that time they were being written about by Time Magazine as the most impressive guerrilla movement the, the Americans had ever seen. They did stuff like after the offensive, they invited uh, two American special forces advisors to embed with them and they overran a Salvadorian military base, you know, and they were like, see, this is how we do it. You know, and this was like to get to the Americans and say, look, well, you're not going to beat us, you know, but we're ready to negotiate. Like, this is the kind of stuff they did. They were really top notch. But you hang out there. and It was like they weren't like the people weren't fundamentally different. I mean, they were just like regular people, you good people honest, humble people, and egomaniacs, dishonest, self-involved egomaniacs. It's the same human material you have everywhere. And it's like somehow they did it. And it wasn't by making sure that everybody had healed and done the work 
and was a nice person before they got down to politics. They got down to politics despite the fact that they were, you know, that their movements were full of the same psychological problems that our movements are. Um, so I don't know what we do with that, but I guess it's, we had to turn away from the self a little bit and we got to, you know, develop a kind of, you know, group sensibility. And it's like, you know, and learn, um, learn to keep, learn the, learn the part of etiquette and manners that has been forgotten by this therapeuticization, which is a type of politicized, you know, politics as etiquette, which is like, you know, to not share your feelings all the time, you know, to like, keep it to yourself. And, uh, you know, think about the larger group and just sort of like the greater good and just carry on. So, I mean, I, I'm, like I said, I'm not answering it specifically like the pathologies or failures of this or that group, but that I, so I'm speaking to your question in a more, a broader cultural sense. I know that's, that's not the full answer we need, but you know. No, thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah. I think your point about therapeutic cultures very well taken. I mean, I think it's particularly disgusting to base political, any political movement on the therapeutic well-being of individuals is fundamentally individualistic. It's fundamentally um, antisocial. I mean, it's a way of, it's a means of passive aggressive control that, you know, masquerades as mental health. It's disgusting. <laughs> so anyway, uh, going back to Stack, uh, Colt, are you still with us? Yes, uh, I am. I'm a uh currently driving on my way to work in the 90 uh nope 100 degree weather according to my truck in new orleans down here um so uh christian just to bring it um uh man what everything that you're saying is just like kind of right up my alley man um and uh so um you know speaking of groups you know and group thinking um uh the chinese right now um seem to have um and correct me if i'm wrong they seem to have kind of picked up the mantle of uh, 18th century economists and like, I guess what classical economists, um, you know, uh, uh, trying to free the market from, uh, from rents, uh, then somehow kind of the capitalists have, uh, have inverted it to where now the public pays for all the rents. And then um, while the capitalists take all of the gains from the land and, and the rents and everything. And that seems to be what China's doing. And it seems uh, to be working. They seem to be kind of uniting um, the kind of the Eastern world, um, if you were. Um, so I just, just wondering if you could kind of uh, comment on that and um, just kind of your opinion on uh, what uh, what they're doing. And they also seem to be not using like diversity language or uh, that kind of thing over there as well. Um, so, yeah, I was just wondering if you could comment on that. And, uh, and thank you uh, for coming to our group or whatever. Thank yeah, you. My pleasure. Um, I mean, my, my take on China is that, you know, it's a developmentalist state. It's It's following the classic pattern that a lot of states have followed to achieve industrialization, which is, you know, the, the Hamiltonian model of it's kind of a mixed economy. This is this is the real story of capitalism, right? The real story of capitalism is it's always it has grown up with a kind of, you know, socialism of sorts. And that, you know, you know, China comes out of the 70s after a series of profound crises, you know, the great leap forward that leads to agricultural disaster the cultural revolution and that things are are pretty bad in the late 70s and that out of purely like pragmatic kind of emergency measures xi jinping uh, i mean deng, deng xiaoping um you know begins opening up and then this like you know growth gets set off and 
then with Tiananmen Square, it's clear they're like they're not going to experiment with political liberalization. And I mean, it seems to me, uh, having been to China twice and spent a bunch of time there and done some story, you know, reported on it, but not, you know, not a, not being a scholar of China at all, that um, that uh, it's hard to say what's going on with China, but that it's like. I think the most important facts are that the Communist Party maintains control, right? And they have they have uh, facilitated the development of capitalist industrialization and the rise of business services and finance now, right? But they maintain control in very important ways. When I was in China the first time, I remember it came out that the the beer had formaldehyde in it, that somehow this was being allowed to happen. And the end result of that little revelation was that the head of the equivalent of the Food and Drug Administration was executed. You know, and I remember this this all happened while I was in a province, Anhui, where it was like, I think it was like three of the last five governors had been executed, something like that. You know, it's like they, it, this doesn't make the news much in, in the West, but it's like the Chinese Communist Party ha- has real I mean, it doesn't necessarily have real control. It uses real repression against elites still. The place also has a federalist system. So these provinces have a lot of autonomy. And, you know, the party in charge of the the national government will send down directives and set goals. And the provinces, you know, may or may not follow them. And there's a real sort of struggle between the provincial governments and the central government. The central government has also increasingly realized that like trade unions can be useful in trying to kind of corral and control these provincial governors. Um, and um, yeah, so, I mean, you know, I, I think that, I think that what's going on is that China is trying to eliminate poverty and create development and that there, there are, you know, people who are, you know, millionaires and billionaires who are part of the Chinese party and are not, you know, who have no interest in giving up their wealth. And I think there are probably people in in the Chinese Communist Party, who have a kind of egalitarian nationalist sensibility that they're you know that they 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 maybe don't want to at the end of the story once development is achieved you know uh, eliminate the 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 capitalist class but that they're you know very clear about social stability raising the standard of living for people and you know continuing this project of developmentalist growth. Um, so that's that's how I see China, and um, I don't really know enough to know what all the real, the real kind of ideological factions are in in the ruling class. But there's clearly, you know, there's a nationalism at the heart of it, and there's a commitment to social stability at the heart of it, and that's what allows the Communist Party to, you know, occasionally use violence against the richest, some of the richest people in the society, because it's like, you know, you are not free to challenge the party and challenge this project, because they're all, you know, they're also, they're all old enough to remember the Cultural Revolution, when they were sent down to the countryside, right, when they they were in these, like, struggle sessions where things were totally out of control, you know, there was a train full of weapons headed to Vietnam that was stopped and looted by rival factions of the Red Guard, who then had gunfights in the streets of the city of Gao, in, in southern China, and the PLA had to go in and and put the kibosh on that. I mean, this is like things got totally out of control in China, and China has a long history of of instability and foreign meddling. And it's like you know, 
the, the current generation of leaders, that's not an abstraction. That's something they lived through, right? So it's like, I think that's important to understand about China. It's not sufficient, but it's important. Thank you. Uh, Meg, you're on stack. Hi. So um, I'd like to shift focus just a little bit here and ask you, um, where do you think there is an opening from an organizing perspective or even just starting at the rhetorical level to get um, the um, segments of the left, even including those who purport to be socialists, um, to take seriously um, these, you know, recent revelations about the FBI. And um, I mean, I have just been like, you know, distraught and appalled at the extent to which it's it's considered wrong think to take seriously or even read the Twitter file revelations. And um, so you mentioned Doug Henwood. He's he's a prime example. There's also Nathan Robinson. Um, you know, there are people years ago I used to to respect that I have actually like it just seems like they've lost their minds. Um, but I mean, I see this as a real emergency. Like if, if, if there's not some sort of resistance to this capture, um, and this is a class issue. So I'm just wondering what you and what other people think is the opening rhetorically or what do we appeal to? But then as um, just in closing, I would like to thank you for your article, The Lockdown Left. Um, I think it was a brave article at the at the time that you wrote it. I'm sure you must have gotten some backlash, but that's um, that's kind of um, consistent with um, you know the sort of trend that I that I've seen since the pandemic um, of just this um, you know overarching concern to you know not support the and thinkingly not do anything that's going to support the right, even if there is. You know, there are real, um, you know, abuses that are going on that really need to be addressed um, and, you know, to totally ignore the fascism of the Democratic Party and, you know, and, and this resistance to populism that might be right wing populism um, instead of trying to, you know, uh, do some deep canvassing, you know, capture these people, ally with there's just. Uh, there just seems to be a real hysteria, and I just like to know what you and others think. Others think is the opening. Is there any opening here? Great question. I mean, I think the opening is class issues. Now, how do we how do we use that opening? That's a different question. Um, I yeah, um, I totally agree with with what you're saying. Um, um, I'm not, you know, I'm not a good, I'm not an organizer. Um, so I can't speak to like how exactly to organize, but I mean, in terms of what's going on there. Yeah. And, I mean, the FBI stuff, this is really, really important. And um, uh, the fact that the left is ignoring it is outrageous. I mean, I just agree with everything you just said. It's, it's totally, uh, it's just shocking to me. And it flows a lot of it, I think, from COVID and the kind of the way that people allow themselves to be terrified by by that and and refuse to think critically and it was i think in large part because it was 
Trump derangement syndrome, right? That people have, you know, cathected upon Trump and that, that they just stopped thinking that way. And it's, and it's really, it's this like total fear of the right wing, which is at the heart of it. And um, I mean, I disagree with Adolf Reed about this. He, he gets into this, you know, very adamantly that the next election could be the last. And it's like, you know, I have my entire life sort of, you know, as a you know child, you know teenager in the eighties, it's like oh no, like you know the the, the crazy Christian right, uh, and they are crazy. But it's you know I think that the the right currently are actually pretty weak, and part of why they're so weak is because their base is still so like ridiculously right wing, and they're going to lose on. The, they're they're losing on the cultural front, I think. You know, I mean, they're still stuck in the '80s of this book banning and Florida I mean, banning Kurt Vonnegut, right? They, Ron DeSantis has this national profile because he is, you know, uh, the one of the most prominent governors to resist the lockdowns and the vaccine mandates and and all this kind of stuff. And a lot of people that I know who were, you know, voted for Bernie and would identify as leftists. We're sort of like interested in that thinking like, you know, you'd hear unusual, like I'd be surprised by the people were saying, yeah, maybe there's some sort of like, is like, like is, the, is the Republican Party becoming kind of left wing? It's like, well, now you got the answer. No, they banned Kurt Vonnegut books. You know, I don't think that's I don't think that's going to fly with with people um, that flies with a, with a small group of blinkered. Christian fundamentalists and, you know, small group. Uh, my in-laws are are all you know evangelical Christians, and it's like they're not they're not into that kind of stuff. Banning Kurt Vonnegut. Um, so yeah, I mean, at the heart of at the heart of the the left ignoring the 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 FBI ex, you know exposes is this terror of the right, and it's like I think I think the left to some extent is fighting the last war. It's like they're constantly imagining it's Nazi Germany. And that the real threat we face right now is the one that you uh, alluded to, Meg, which is like the totalitarianism of the center. This is something Augusto del Nocchio is a, a conservative Italian philosopher who was only translated into English in 2017. I just read him during the, the pandemic, but he was very interested in Marxism. He wrote a whole book about Gramsci. Um, he wrote about Paolo Pasolini. I think he and Pasolini actually um, corresponded. And and he took Marxism seriously. He was religious. He was he was a conservative Catholic. And, um, you know, to those who said, oh, Marxism is just a religion, he said, yeah, but that's that's one of its best parts. And he was critical of Gramsci for the sort of cultural turn. He's like, that's that's sort of the end of Marxism. And he 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 anticipates in the mid in the early 60s, a lot of the kind of stuff that we see now with this, you know, the cultural motifs of the left coming to be the, the motifs by which the center can rule in an authoritarian, in a totalitarian fashion, not just authoritarian, totalitarian as in like, it's not just authoritarian from on top, but that there's also this mass consent and hunger for the project of censorship and repression and social control. So, um, you What's know, the name of that philosopher again? The Italian author you referenced? Augusto del Noce, N-O-C-E, D-E-L, and the new word N-O-C-E. Yeah, so one of the topics... What? I was just going to go off of that. One of the topics Class Unity has been pursuing a lot lately is the idea of fascism and how do we understand what fascism is. 
And we've done a lot to look at, say, the political economic origins of Nazi Germany, but then also of the American war machine. So just, just in terms of today's American politics, like what, what does that word mean? There's yeah. terms. Should we well, understand fascism? Yeah, I don't I don't think that the Republican Party are fascist. I mean, I think I think that that the the threat comes from, you know, the totalitarian threat right now is really from the center and that the left has been co-opted into that. And in terms of the FBI stuff, I mean, this is let's just be clear in case anyone hasn't read these articles. Right. It's like, I mean, we now have mounting evidence that the FBI has tried to influence the outcome of the last two elections. And even if you are, you know, support the way that those, you know, the most recent election went, I think one should be very concerned about that. And that, that should not be allowed. Intelligence agencies intervening into elections should be a red line that cannot be tolerated and should cause mass outrage. And there's, there are people all across the political spectrum who if spoken to rationally about this would be totally on board for reforming these agencies. And that's all being squandered because the Democrats with the support of the left are actively trying to sabotage the the House committee on, you know, looking into the weaponization of the federal government. Um, so, um, yeah, and I have, I have a recent piece of a compact that kind of carries on with that a little bit in, in response to reading the Durham report. So I think that that's really that's really important in terms of like fascism. It's like. I mean, okay, there are definitely there are fascist elements, there are fascist movements. We saw that, you know, in um, in 2017 with, you know, um, these paramilitary groups in Charlottesville and, you know, in Berkeley and elsewhere. Um, but but I think that, you know, one of the questions that's been raised by recent revolutions is what is the relationship of the FBI to these organizations? The Proud Boys, the head of the Proud Boys, had been an FBI informant, Enrique Toyo, for 10 years. You know, there are like perhaps like dozens, I mean, there are many handfuls of informants in the January 6th protests and throughout these movements of the right, you know, that hit the streets under Donald Trump and and create this terrible spectacle because they're doing terrible things, you know, and that's that's also part of what cows the left into the uh you know the shelter of the democratic party and i understand that fear and i get it but it's like we also need to to you know be doing good investigative journalism and you know legal analysis of what the hell's going on here exactly you know and no one even asks these questions it's like oh oh so what so the proud boys were headed by an fbi informant what's the implication the implication is that the FBI has some control over this whole organization. That's the implication. So, you know, um, but they'll use, you know, I mean, so there are these fascist elements, there's connections to the state, but I mean, I think that the, you know, the, that the U S is not going to see something like Nazi Germany, that's going to be different here. And we need to be attuned to our own culture, our own history and, 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 and the way things are, developing right before our eyes. And I do not see a kind of Republican party going fascist and a mass base of, of fascist Republicans, you know, having a coup and, and having a fascist America. Rather, I think it's the, the warning of Del Noche that it's like the center 
you know, it, so what Donoche says is that we know about the totalitarianism of the right, that's fascism and Nazism and their obsession with race. And we know about the totalitarianism of the left, that's Stalinism and the obsession with, with class and the revolution and the kind of, you know, uh, repression that can go with that. And what we're totally blind to is the totalitarian potential of the center that will, that flies under the, you know, the flag of scientism and even care and, you know, all of these um, terms that, that we're kind of uncritical of. And I mean, that's, that's where I see the totalitarian threat. And by totalitarian, again, it's, you know, repressive social control from on high that is being embraced and met with alacrity from below and bought into and even, you know, uh, carried forth by, by the masses. And you saw that in COVID, you know, it was, it was not simply uh, directives from on high and everyone kind of like sulkily like complying. People were throwing themselves into the project of uh, compliance with the, the COVID mandates. Thank you. Uh, we have a question in Chicago. If somebody's talking, I can't hear them. Yeah, can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you now. Uh, again, thank you for doing this. Um, you've kind of, I actually, I got on Stack a while ago, and you've sort of already answered this. But I was going to ask, like, um, it seems like diversity politics are very successful among the working class. And I guess I wanted to ask, have you speak to why that is? And like, what does that say about working class politics? And I think a lot of times this gets hand waved away and, and you kind of did this to a certain degree by saying like, we have to build class consciousness. But I guess I'm saying like, how do you do that and why hasn't it worked? And I have my own like okay. suspicions, but I kind of want to hear you speak to it kind of. Well, I, wa I wonder, you know, I, I wonder how much it is done. I mean, you know, I am not a political organizer like many of you are. So you know, some of these questions, you have the expertise and I don't. Um, so, I mean, I wonder how much it is done because I don't see a lot of it. I mean, what I see among my working class students at John Jay is that they they're they're all very open to a class message because it's so real for them. They're 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 all worried about money, you know, and that when when those kinds of you know issues come up, they they listen, you know, and. They have no doubt that the system is rigged. They live in New York City. They can see it in the geography that there's, you know, rich neighborhoods and then the neighborhoods that they live in. And it's like, you know, they want to understand why this is. Um, so, I mean, I, I don't really know, um, you know, how much it is done by unions and organizations and stuff like that. I suspect not as much as we, th we think it could. And I think, you know, I don't know. I mean, I think a lot of probably what happens, you know, is that it, class gets thrown in with all these other oppressions. You know, it's like we, you know, we stand with and there's the long list of marginalized people. And, and if you're lucky, maybe it'll be like, you know, and low wage workers or like, you know, something like that. And so there's like class shows up as status too often on the left rather than class as a relationship to the means of production. Um, so. Yeah, I don't I don't know any more than I've said as to why it doesn't happen, except that I, I think it's probably not it's not endorsed that much. You know, my wife, Marcy Smith Parenti, who wrote a great piece on COVID um, even before I did in the gray zone, I recommend that all to you. She ran an organization, a nonprofit called um, 
um, the Responsible Endowments Coalition. And it organized student, it was funded by the foundations. And its job was to, you know, organize the student organizers around protests. I mean, its real job was basically to take young activists and muddle their heads with a whole bunch of nonsense and get them to start thinking like fund managers, right? So the whole thing was, you know, students at colleges have to work on divestment. Where does that come from? That comes directly from the foundations. That's where that came up from. And then it came down through Bill McKibben and Naomi Klein and others. But it's like, that's what the foundations were going to fund. They decided that. I think Wallace Global was the, the one that specifically started that. Now they're all Rockefeller brothers. They're all like, that's what you do. If you have another plan, you don't get funding, right? So if that's your plan, then you get funding. And um, so she came in uh, and, you know, the place was in disarray. She reorganized it. And she hired a bunch of radicals, including a bunch of radicals from the Philippines. And then she started taking these youth activists who, you know, the funding was essentially to, to like divest, invest, right? So it's like you demand that the, the endowment divest, but then you have to think hard, and, you know, about, well, how should we invest? And it's like, that's not the question to be thinking about. But, so she started taking these activists over to the Philippines to, well, she didn't go, my wife didn't go, but like her staff, you know, took delegations of these student activists to the Philippines, to villages that were, you know, not to put too fine a point on it, were basically NPA allied villages, you know, that were, that had been displaced by the military and were now fighting against logging comp companies and had really clear radical class politics, right? And, at, and I told her, I said, you know, the founders are not going to like this. And indeed they didn't, they pulled the plugs immediately. That was it. That was the end. You know, it didn't matter that this was super popular and that these these students were getting a, a great education and understanding the world. But it was like suddenly the money ran out. Right. So I think there's a lot of that out there, too, that it's like you can you can sort of, you know, if, if you are appealing to foundation funding and you say I'm a socialist or even I'm a Marxist, like like Patricia Cullors of Black Lives Matter, like I'm a Marxist. She says she's a Marxist. Um, you can, you know, you can say that, but you can't actually do a class analysis. That's, that's a no-no. And if you do that, then your funding dries up, which is fine, but it just means it's going to be a different kind of organization. You're not going to rise through the nonprofits of the left. You know, you're going to have to be involved. You're not, you're not going to be a professional activist. You know, you might, if you get a job with organized labor, but there you're going to run into all sorts of similar uh, limitations. So are there any questions that I have missed? This has been a great discussion. Thank you, everybody. Um, okay, looks like there is one from DC I missed. Uh, Yes. Do you think that the woke, this might uh, cover some of the things we've talked about already. Do you think that the woke culture of the elites is the same or close to the same as the movement of the new left of the 60s and 70s or just taking the superficial aspect of this? This is something we, we've brought up a lot. And I mean, it seems like there has been a real shift in like a lot of this politics comes from academia. So, yeah. I mean, like within academia, is there is there real outlets for class conscious research and uh, 
relevant or is it just kind of theory crawling into it you know to be crude crawling up its own asshole i mean is is that kind of what the left academia has become just in the proceedings yeah decades? i mean there is um i mean there's 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 more room in academia for class politics than there has been in the past but fundamentally um you know there there's a kind of faux culturalist radicalism that predominates in, in academia and um even with the uh you know even with the kind of more class oriented stuff like the new history of capitalism stuff that Sven Beckert and Walter Johnson um and Edward Baptiste are you know sort of associated with you know uh those guys are all notable for basically not engaging with marxism right so that's still very much um prevalent in in academia it's that's like even as there's like more room for kind of work around class and economic issues it's like the best of that work that's being done almost assiduously avoids this big old tradition marxism that's full of insights and full of problems and whatever but that needs that should be engaged with right and it's like so I think that's that's um, that's part of what's going on. But mostly it's like, you know, identitarian um, politics uh, class, if it's mentioned, is as a status group, not as a means the relations of production and uh, culture is everything. You know, you do not study economic reality. Uh, economics doesn't study economic reality by and large right that's about model building and testing theories and then you know geography and sociology which could be doing a lot of political economic research it's like you know you do a jstor search of the academic articles on any given subject the vast majority of them are going to be you know the culture of type articles rather than you know the material practices of you know or the, the the nuts and bolts and political economy of fill in the blanks you know it could be like whatever the modern timber industry water management in you know the 1920s what, what, whatever subject it is it's like it's amazing how much the the culturalist turn predominates William Armstack. um Welcome. hey christian uh i find it interesting to uh slice and dice uh people in different ways and to to look at different groups of people uh so for example i find it very interesting to look at young young versus old uh seems like young people get exploited uh by older people specifically you know in in uh, low-wage jobs and military service um yeah, poor versus rich is another obvious one. Republicans and Democrats maybe doesn't make as much sense as it used to, but uh, it, it's interesting to think of the world as uh, pro-establishment or populist. Do you do you have any um, ways that you like to to view the world or America or the population in that uh, you know might might help illuminate some stuff? Uh, well, I, I thought I was uh, laying out some of those in over the last hour and a half, you know, I mean, class analysis um, and uh, looking at the, the hidden role of the state. But uh, you were also kind of breaking up there uh, in, my, in your question. But 
you you mentioned you know looking at you know young people old people exploiting young people it's like yeah but you know conditioned by class you know or or like are young multimillionaires really that exploited you know no generally not you know and if they are they don't have to work at burger king or whatever they can go off and and do something else so i mean though you know those those uh layers of experience are important but i think they become problematic if they're disembedded from an analysis of the whole economic system and and the class hierarchy that is produced by that system and reproduces it so so with regards to classes i mean the the, the traditional marxist account of the bourgeoisie and the proletariat it's become somewhat more complicated in today's days, especially with globalization and the fact that the, the means of production and distribution and all of that are literally to the four corners of the globe. So what prospect for the left is there to organize around labor? Labor is globalized. Uh, how do we begin to well, think? About I mean, there's lots of labor that's not globalized, right? There's uh, the entire service sector. You know, you can't you can't ship that overseas. Um, and there's, I think there's, you know, there's plenty of options. I, I don't, I don't think the the problem is that anytime we try to organize, they move the factory overseas. That's obviously a big part of the story of neoliberalism. That's part of how the working class was politically broken was through deindustrialization, right? I mean, breaking unions and deindustrialization go hand in hand, but, but there's enormous amounts of work that can't be that can't be moved away. Um, so that's what I would say to that. And uh, you know, in terms of this, you know, the classic schemata of, of of classes. I mean, that's part of why we need ruling class studies, you know, and a kind of class studies to to think about how this stuff works. What are the you know what are the material relationships between these classes? What are the ideological connections? How you know, how does the ruling class like maintain ideological control over the professional managerial class who basically, you know, you know, you could say like the, the petty bourgeoisie who have become proletarianized, even as they have this kind of larger social status in the, in the society. Uh, you know, I mean, a lot of these things are empirical questions that, that need to be understood through research about the moment and can't just be understood through, you know, the great old political texts. I mean, so I think that that could be important, but I mean, how do we organize? This comes again and again. How do we organize? It's like, I, I don't know. I wish I had the 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 answer to that. But I think one part of it is is building class consciousness. Another part of it is people have to be disabused of their cynicism, you know, and I think that's really uh, I spoke to that in the beginning a little bit. It's like I think that is really demobilizing that the kind of hopelessness and cynicism. And that's one of the advantages that the right has over the left is that the right has this kind of, um, to some extent, unfounded and unrealistic optimism in the future. And it's very empowering. And so, you know, the left used to have that too. And if you read the biographies of the great left leaders, they, they were moved by this millenarian faith in the future. That they knew, like, I will die in the struggle, but it's inevitable, right? I mean, it's basically, it's a secular religiosity. Uh, you know, the, the revolution will inevitably prevail. And of course, that's not true. Nothing is inevitable. You don't know 
you don't know what's going to happen. But it's like, boy, that belief, that optimism was incredibly useful and powerful, you know, and it's in short supply these days. And, and, um, and I think that, um, so yeah, I think that that's, that's part of it, right? The culture, um, you know, trying to build a, a counterculture from which to organize. And I'm not an organizer. I've never been good at that. I've been to the extent that I, you know, have been an activist, which I'm not really anymore. It's, it's been as a, a rank and file person. Um, um, so I'm sorry, I don't have better answers on that front, but, but I do think that, you know, that this, like some sort of subculture, that's not this weird, weird left exclusive subculture. And it's also not some sort of CP front. The, the communist party had this as a sensibility, like you got to be with the people where they're at. And what developed was this kind of like frumpy kind of just like stale subculture in the CP. Um, my dad was part of the CP and you know, I hung out around the CP in my youth, but there's gotta be a kind of, you know, a cultivation of um, left-wing sensibilities through the motifs of the culture, you know, of, of where people are at, you know? And I think that part of the, the woke thing, the moralizing, the therapeutic stuff is that a lot of what people are, are into is pathologized, you know? Um, and that to become a leftist for a lot of regular people, it feels like you have to go through some sort of like cultural transformation and adopt a kind of a cult like, you know, subculture focused on language and inclusion and this sort of stuff. And just like, you know, you can't like, you can't be into whatever you're into. You can't be into sports, cars, makeup, this kind of stuff. You know, I mean, that's what we got to be thinking about. It's like, you know, if the left is to ever have any traction and be like a real threat sorority girls in tennessee have to be into it you know what i mean if they have sorority girls who love makeup are like you're like damn right i'm for medicare for all you know and i know i do not think that there should be giant private pharmaceutical companies and i do not think that absolutely central uh decisions about our lives should be left to these mega corporations and banks you know like that's what you need you need like squares regular people have to be embracing those kinds of ideas. Those squares, those regular people, they're not going to turn into the people that you meet in Brooklyn and Berkeley. They're just not. And if you try and tell them that they should, they're going to hate you. You know, they're going to feel attacked. So, I, I mean, I think that's a big, a big part of what the left has to do is like try to get, you know, get in touch with, with regular people, you know, and speak to them in a way that, that includes them. And I think that what that means is sort of like, probably shedding a lot of stuff, accepting that there's going to be, people are going to have very um, distinct and weird positions and stuff. I think, in the, you know, something else that has, I've been, I, I should have mentioned, but I think that part of the problem in terms of the general question that, that, that we're circling around here, of like what's wrong with the left is also social media. I mean, I, I see the effect of social media as very damaging for people because you, you no longer have private space to think. And I, you know, uh, mentioning, Doug Henwood and Nathan Robinson, all this, you know, I mean, this milieu, um, you know, people in Brooklyn I've known for 20 years, is, I, I, you know, I couldn't prove it to you, but my gut tells me that social media has been very, very bad for their critical thinking mm -hmm. because they're called upon to constantly respond to things 
you know, in front of thousands of others, and then to, to be accountable for every little thought that flits through their head. And you need some privacy to think critically. And you have to like, you know, take on ideas, experiment with them, kick them around and feel free to be like, yeah, I don't know. I don't know about that. Or like, you know, what if I really thought this, you know, it's like, so I don't know what we do about that, but I do think that, that, uh, you know, this, this Twitter, Facebook, social media subculture has been damaging for the left. And it's part of what gives it its insular cult-like sensibilities and feelings. And it, and, and thus causes it to, you know, alienate squares. Well, thank you very much. Thank you, Christian, for talking to us today. We're coming up on time. Thank you to everyone for your questions and participation. Um, any closing thoughts you'd like to leave us with? Um, no, I'm seeing some interesting thing here about 50 million people engaged in agriculture and mining forestry, but for another time. Um, closing thoughts. Um, no, thank, thank you for inviting me. And, um, you know, keep up the good work. It's like, it's, it's heartening to, to see people who are, you know, concerned about, about class questions and really committed to, to working on that front. I think that's very important. And I'm, and I'm sure that it probably feels difficult and hard, but, you know, I commend you and keep on, keep up the great work. Thank you so much. Thank you for everyone for listening today. Take care. Have a good afternoon. Take care.